have an extremely special guest on the show, and I'm very excited to have him on to discuss the concept of success and what specifically to those who are enlisting now, how to apply these things to be successful in the Air Force. Our guest is Colonel Kevin Matthews. Colonel Matthews just retired after serving in the Marine Corps for nearly 30 years. He's commanded thousands of Marines, but he, but a few of the unique highlights uh, for his career was that he's uh, acted as the recruiting commanding officer responsible for 11 states, 220 offices, and 820 recruiters. Those numbers are mind-boggling. He's also served as a military attache in Singapore, which means that he's basically the DOD representative to the Singapore government. But where I know Colonel Matthews was from our time at the U.S. AFRICOM Joint Operations Center, where he was the director and I was the branch chief. So basically, Colonel Matthews was my boss. I've learned to trust and apply his wisdom in my own life, and I'm excited for him to share that wisdom with you. Welcome to the show, Colonel Matthews. Josh, thanks for having me. I'm, I'm really honored to be here. Uh, you've been uh, also a mentor to me, and uh, I, I've grown in our time together. So really privileged to be here, and uh, hopefully your audience uh, gets a little bit of uh, some of my wisdom that I shared today. <laughs> I have no doubt. That was very kind of you to say first. Um, so I spoke a little bit about the professional side uh, on the intro to introduce you to the show, but tell us a little bit about yourself, where are you from, hobbies, family, and why you decided to join the Marine Corps and not the Air Force? <laughs> uh, so I'm from uh, Honolulu, Hawaii, uh, born and raised there. My father was a retired Navy chief. Met my mother in Japan. Uh, she's Japanese. Uh, they got married. Moved back to Hawaii where he retired. And uh, I grew up there. Uh, I knew at the age of 12 when my dad took me through the uh, Navy base at Pearl Harbor uh, that I wanted to be a Marine. Because uh, back then all the Navy bases were guarded by Marines. And uh, we drove through that gate and I saw a young Marine NCL with his uniform and ribbons from Vietnam and you know, standing ramrod straight and professional. I'm like, I don't know what that guy is, but that's what I'm going to be when I grow up. Uh, but my parents said that uh, that's fantastic. But what you're going to be is you're going to go to college and you're going to be an engineer. So being the eldest, uh, I did what I was told to do, uh, went off to college. And uh, interestingly enough, I, I uh, was an alternate on the Air Force ROTC scholarship and uh, uh, decided uh, when I was at college that I'd go up to uh, the ROTC uh, drill. And uh, when I got there, I said, wow, this is way too much discipline for me. I'm not cut out for this. So I uh, elected to not join the Air Force ROTC. Uh, but went off, uh, did the college thing, but uh, got my degree, uh, worked as an engineer and decided, you know, I really want to be a Marine. And so I left all that and uh, joined the Marines in uh, January of 1992. Uh, Married, got two kids, a 17-year-old uh, daughter and a 14-year-old uh, son. And uh, I've uh, actually told both of them that if you decide to join the military, I'll support you. But you can't join the Marines. Uh, you can join the Space Force or the Air, uh, Air Force. So that's, uh, that's me in a nutshell. <laughs> so that, that's that, there's that sound clip that I was looking for. 30-year <laughs> Marine Corps 06. Yeah, well, you know, he's, kids should join I, the Air I Force. I love recruiters, so if I can help you, Air Force. 
I love recruiters, so if I can help you, Air Force recruiters, uh, I'll do what I can. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for that. I'm sure they're they're over there like, yes, <laughs> we got the endorsement. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's awesome. So um, can you tell us a little bit about what success means to you um, and how you think that those who are thinking about enlisting in the military, how they should frame success in the military? Yeah, you know, uh, when you're younger, you kind of think of uh, success as being really wrapped around image, uh, vanity, you know, having the car, you know, the nice clothes, the title, um, you know, the prestige. But now, now that I'm a little bit older, uh, I kind of look back on my life and I, I define, you know, success a little bit differently now, right? And uh, kind of a couple of big things when I think about, you know, what constitutes success and what have I done in my life that was successful? And, uh, you know, the one thing is, you know, kind of finding that niche, right? That thing that you do really well and you're kind of known for being really good at it. And that you also enjoy, you know, what you're doing. And, and when I think about like, you know, my, my occupational specialty was uh, infantry. But when I think about like my most successful tours out there, I think about our time at U.S. Africa Command. And, you know, I'm no specialist in IT systems and command and control. But what I really, I thought I was pretty good at was just kind of, you know, motivating, inspiring people, you know, helping them find in themselves, you know, their potential and then, and help guide them and lead them to that, uh, achieving that potential. And so I think, uh, you know, between me and you and the other branch chiefs that we're able to do that. And when I look back, you know, I consider that to be success, right? That there was something that I, I felt like I was good at. Uh, I pursued it. Uh, I wouldn't say I mastered it, but I got really good at it and I really enjoyed it. The other part of success is about the people, right? And somebody said, like, you know, you can tell the measure of a person by the number of people that show up at their funeral. <laughs> and not, not to get, uh, you know, morbid here, but it's really about when you go through life, how many people do you connect with, right? And how many lifelong friends um, you make. And in the military, I'm, I'm going to tell you more than anywhere else uh, in any industry, the, the people that you meet in the Air Force, Navy, Army, and Marines are going to be the best people you're ever going to meet. And, and, I, and I guess I'd recommend to, to the young listeners out there that, you know, take the time, right? Take the time to know the people that you're working with, regardless of the rank, you know, from your commanding officer and chief master sergeant down to the most junior person and value that time with them, you know, invest up, invest down and invest to the people to the left and right of you and make those relationships and and they'll carry through with you for the rest of your life. Yeah, wow. That's a phenomenal answer. Uh, one or 10% agree with you that my time in the military, both as wearing the uniform and as a civilian, right, has been, it's that camaraderie, right? And it's the, the people aspect. Uh, and honing in on what I think is probably one of my skills is people, right? I People are a passion of mine, um, a deep passion of mine. Um, so, learning yourself, right? Doubling down on your strengths, yep. um, making those yours specific, and then kind of project that out into your actual military career. Everyone has got strengths and weaknesses, right? Some of it's very skill-based. Some of yep. it's the interpersonal base and stuff. Um, so one or 10% agree. 
Okay, so let's say your son and your daughter um, both came to you and said that they were going to enlist in the Air Force. Um, what practical advice uh, would you give them to be successful? Um, let's start with, uh, number one, the recruiting process, and then, like, generally speaking, uh, in, in the Air Force itself. Yeah, so, uh, you know, in the recruiting process, uh, the most important thing, you know, if my, my son or daughter were, were thinking about joining the Air Force or any service, the first thing I'd tell them is, like, you own the recruiting process, right? And I know that the recruiters don't want to hear this, but you're not getting drafted. So, you know, take your time and explore all the possibilities, you know, the, the, the career or the occupational skills and wait for the right one to come up. You may not know everything about it, but you probably know enough people out there that you can find out about it, right? Or listen to this podcast, right? Because you interview people from different occupational specialties and you have to kind of make sure that, you know, the the occupational field that you enter into, it's the right fit for you, right? Because you're, you're going to be doing it for four years and what you don't want to do is end up in a job that you don't like. And so, you know, pick the right job and and make sure that that your relationship with your recruiter is a good one, right? That it's a mutually respectful and trust-based relationship. And if you feel like you don't have that with your recruiter, then, you know, respectfully ask for another one, you know, because that recruiter is going to be your friend for life, you know, and having run Marine Corps recruiting, you know, um, I ask Marines everywhere, you know, uh, do you stay in contact with your drill instructor or your boot, you know, your, your boot camp instructor? And they say, no. I said, do you stay in touch with your recruiter? Yes. You know, almost all of them to a, to a person says, you know, five, 10, 15, 20 years, they're still in contact with the recruiter because that's a lifelong friendship because that's the person who changed your life. But once they get in, you know, one of the things I would tell them is that, you know, your career is your responsibility. It's not the Air Force or Marine or Army's responsibility. You know, where you want to be in the future and the service depends on you, right? And this is not being a careerist or conniving, scheming, you know, thinking about the next thing. You know, but what it is is really thinking about where do you want to be 20 years from now? Mm-hmm. You know, I know it's hard if you're just a senior airman going, whoa, I don't know, 20 years from now, that's like, that's like 100 years from now. I don't, I don't know where I want to be. <laughs> but think about it, right? You know, maybe you want to be the chief master sergeant of a colonel of a command, you know, and, and advising, a, you know, a wing commander. But think about that, you know, where do you want to be in the future in the service? And then figure out, like, what are the steps that I need to get there? You know, maybe you got to go to resident professional development schools, right? At, at different ranks, maybe you need to get a college degree, you know, or there are certain jobs or locations you need to, uh, uh, hit. The thing that's important to know is that, you know, the longer you stay in the military and the higher in rank you go, uh, you're still leading people, but really what you're doing is you're leading an enterprise or the institution of the Air Force, right? And so what that means is if you're a logistician, you know, it's good that you can run a warehouse or supply chain, but really what the Air Force or the service needs is for you to run the whole, you know, logistics or supply chain management system for your wing or, you know, your squadron or, or you know, numbered Air Forces, right? You're an institutional leader and you're thinking about what's best for the Air Force. So when you think about that and all those, you know, 
where do, what goals do I need to hit? What builds? I don't know. Well, reach out to mentors. You know, your former, you know, first sergeant or, you know, flight commander or wing commander. They'd love to hear from you. They would absolutely love to hear from you, you know, five, 10 years from now and ask them, you know, where, where should I go? What, what, what kind of job should I be looking at? And then at each year, career crossroads, you know, make informed decisions, not emotion-based or, or short-sighted. You know, think about that roadmap uh, that you develop. And the final year, the last thing I'd say is, and well, I hope people don't take offense from this, but when you take career advice, don't take them from your peers, right? Because <laughs> your peers are probably not the best people, you know, positioned to give you advice on them, where you need to go to become a chief master sergeant of the Air Force, you know. Go back to your mentors, go back to your former commanders or senior enlisted, and they're going to be the ones because they've been there who are going to give you the best possible advice. Hey, let's take a quick break. If you are all about the Air Force, then be sure to check out the newly launched Forever Wingman YouTube channel, where we have all of these podcasts, but with our beautiful faces. Also, if you are researching the Air Force career field, then be sure to check out foreverwingman.com. There you'll find the most comprehensive data on all of the AFSCs on the entire interwebs. I'm not flexing at all. Lastly, if you are in the Air Force and are, or have recently separated and want to share your story to help the next generation airmen, then reach out to me at foreverwingman.com slash interview. That's foreverwingman.com slash interview. Okay, back to the show. Pull on that string a little bit on on the mentors. So everywhere that I've been, I've I've always had mentors. Um, surprisingly enough, a lot of them are from other services, um, which which is actually super helpful to make me a little more well rounded, right? But it wasn't. Um, mm-hmm. There was intentionality, but it was very organic um, in in finding those mentors and those mentors finding me. Um, what, in your opinion, what, what's the best way of finding a mentor? Um, do you think that it's very structured? Like we meet once a week to talk about these specific things, or do you think it's just more kind of gray and loosey goosey? Um, is it bottom up, um, top down kind of, can you speak a little bit more on the, on the mentorship? Yeah, that, you know, mentorship is, uh, uh an interesting Topic and it's you know it's defined in our service documents, but in actuality, the way it works out, it, it depends on the individual, right? You know, every leader should have a structured, former, formal mentoring process where they're providing you, you know, clear, uh, concise feedback on your performance and and how you need to get better. But that's uh, probably not you know, a lifelong mentorship relationship, right? A lifelong mentorship relationship, which are the most valuable ones, are the ones that just kind of grow through, you know, um, periodic contact with people that that you think highly of and you, and you kind of strike up a, a friendship with. And when I think about my, my mentors that I still talk to uh, and seek uh, just kind of life or, professional advice. They've been people that haven't really always been, you know, my direct boss. They're just kind of people that I've served with. uh, And we just kind of over time kind of um, bumped into each other, right? Or served in same places, you know, multiple times over the years, uh, but not always working with or for each other. 
And I find that those are the most valuable ones because they can you can speak frankly with them. You know, maybe you're having difficulty with your boss who's in a structured mentoring relationship with you. You know, and and, and you can get, you know, um, advice from them that's non-judgmental. Uh, they're not in a position, in an awkward position, right? They're outside that formal chain of command and uh, they give you the best possible advice and they're looking out for you. That's the most important thing is about your mentor is that your mentor has to have your personal uh, best interest in heart, right? And uh, those just kind of grow over time. Yeah, so I, I agree. So I think most of the 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 mentors that I have has been very very organic, um, and then the the structured mentor process. I think probably some of the biggest hurdles that people have um, in regards to that um, is they're they're not receptive to it, right? Um, like it hearing one like you coming to me and saying, Josh, you really need to work on this. You need to work on your I don't know your communication skills. You're not commu clearly communicating the task at hand or whatever the case may be. Um, if I was extremely prideful and not self-aware, right. I'm just gonna be like, what does he think? Like I communicated clearly, like this is exactly what it's supposed yes. to happen. Right. And then it's just like, you're, it's like a ball hitting a wall. Um, and, but if you're receptive to that and you're being able to, to internalize that, right. Then action comes after, and then you start growing tremendously on that. And I think that there's so much, maybe it's the military organization as a whole, but a lot of pride associated with, um, with being in the military and with that pride, sometimes it comes that we're not teachable, um, or we lose the ability to be teachable or that the older we get, the more that the less teachable we become. Yeah. You know, I, I just wanted to say real quick, uh, I went to this coaching, uh, course and, uh, before the coach and the, uh, the coachee sit down, both of them have to say kind of this little, uh, they're kind of promises, right? And one of the promises is that as a coachee, I promise to ensure the success of my coach in this session, right? What that's saying is that I'm going to be open to what the coach has to say. I may not agree with everything, but I want to ensure that the coach is successful in achieving their coaching objectives. And what that does is force you to be more open uh, to what they have to say. The other thing is uh, as a coach or a mentor, and, I, and I'm encountering this on my current job where I'm, you know, coaching um, kind of middle level managers in a uh, industrial facility. There's some people that I run into who are just not ready for it. They, they, are, they do not want what I have to offer right now. And so what I've learned in this great, uh, um, well, I forgot the name of the book. I'll remember it in a minute. But uh, um, the book says that, you know, you have to pro provide value to the client first, right? Yeah. You have to show them that you're in and that you're going to do something to help them be successful. And uh, so I, what I've done with these middle-level managers is I'm not pushing the coaching on them yet. But what I am doing is working extra hard to help them in their, their job you know, make it more efficient, you know, dem uh, provide value and show that uh, I'm all in, right? I'm there for them. And I'm not just here collecting a paycheck to mentor them. So um, we've only been this, I've only been on this contract for a month. Uh, hopefully it works out 
but uh, you know, I think that's one of the most important things. You just can't force uh, a mentoring relationship with somebody. Yeah, yeah, I yeah, I I completely agree. So, in in my mind, I feel that um, first impressions uh, have so much impact. Um, what what is your take on first impressions, and what what kind of advice would you give to someone who may be um, going over to the recruiter to to initiate that first contact, or they're already in the service and now they're going to a professional function um, and they're kind of working the room, so to speak? Can you can you speak a little bit to to like the power of uh, first impressions, and then if there's any practical advice that young people could can use to to make great first impressions? Yeah. You know, at the risk of sounding like your dad or your grandpa, <laughs> but the old timey stuff is actually, it's spot on, right? Cause you know, we're, 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 we're humans, uh, but at our core, we do have kind of, you know, mammal or animal instincts, right? We, we, uh, we're open to things that are uh, reassuring uh, or non-threatening and we tend to outright dismiss things that are alien to us. And uh, so some of those things that you've heard uh, from your dad or your grandpa, or your coach, you know, about the firm handshake, you know, eye contact, shoulders back, head up, you know, introduce yourself confidently and smiling, right? Smiling, open uh, gesture or face. That really actually, th- there is science behind that, right? There's biology behind it because it's showing them that you're not only are you confident in yourself, you're also non-threatening. You know, but then you're somebody that they feel like, you know, at least subconsciously that I can connect with this person, right? I can see myself enjoying a conversation with this person. And that's going to, that, that's going to uh, go a long way uh, for you. And I'll tell you that that doesn't come natural to all people. You know, for me personally, I'm a uh, introvert and uh, I generally in the past did not enjoy uh, social uh, functions, but as a military attaché in the American Embassy in Singapore, I would probably had to go to two to three cocktail hours or social functions a week. Mm-hmm. And I learned real quickly, you know, how to work the room. And if you're an introvert, if you're going to a job fair or something like that, it can be overwhelming, right? But if you have a strategy for work in the room, which is first thing, you know, walk into the room, stop at the threshold, you know, head up, look around, make brief eye contact with people and smile, but just keep walking, right? Walk to the other side of the room, get a refreshment, you know, calm your nerves down and then look for people who are standing by themselves and just go up and introduce yourself to them and make small talk and then move on to the next person. And you'll find that you'll become more comfortable as you work in the room. And then what you're doing is kind of working out, you know, these kind of uh, individuals, and then you're kind of working your way into the to the larger groups where you make uh, meaningful contact, and that takes practice. It really does, and I'd highly recommend, especially for those who are you know in that kind of career transition period, you know, going to job fairs and and kind of practicing this where it's no you know low threat environment, but practice those body language things, of smiling, you know, firm handshake making brief eye contact, making small, you know, small uh, talk. And and the easiest way to make small talk is just ask questions, you know, ask people about them. Where are you from? Where'd you go to school? 
What do you do now? What do you enjoy about it? You know, and then move on. Don't go for the kill. You know, look for the, you know, the reference or anything like that, but practice it because you find that over time, these things about first impressions and work in the room uh, will become more comfortable and uh, something that you'll be able to do, you know, without a lot of discomfort. Yeah, that's all really, really good practical advice. So um, quick story, confession time on my side. Um, so I'm from a small, small town in, in Oklahoma. Um, and I enlisted in the air force because I thought I was too stupid to do anything else. Right. I almost <laughs> failed out of high school. Um, and it just happened to be the air force that was the first recruiter station that I went into. So I could have easily gone into any service. It just happened to be the air force at the time. Um, but I wasn't very confident at all, uh, in, in the least bit. But it's been over time, it's come a little bit easier to me because I'm an extrovert, right? Um, mm-hmm. and, and I truly enjoy people and hearing their stories. Um, but like even the way that I dressed wasn't very confident, right? And mm-hmm. then I got married and my wife, who is extremely confident um, and uh, grew up in a, in a family of very, very confident people, kind of in that. I'd probably say the social etiquette was pretty high. Um, yeah. She's like, you need to change the way that you dress um, because you you dress like a kid. And it's like, mm-hmm. if you ever want to, you know, you know, promote higher or whatever the case may be, then, then you need to start dressing like an adult. And I was like, well, <laughs> okay, what does that look like? It's like, well, just look around, right? And if you go to a social function um, and you you look around if everyone's wearing civilian clothes, you'll see that the senior leaders are wearing like khakis and a polo mm-hmm. or a button up. Um, and the younger enlisted are wearing like gym shorts and a t-shirt. And, <laughs> and it's, it's like, <laughs> like think, think about what it is that you're projecting, right? Your, your haircut, um, like making sure that you're, you're clean, right? Because perception as much as we hate it is reality, right? It's biological. We're, we're being judged all the time. Um, we're being judged yep. on the mannerisms that we're having now in the video, right? So mm-hmm. it's um, so think specifically, like you said, on those um, those nonverbals, the uh, the the body language, the eye contact, exactly like you said. And one, I think, one take home for the audience, um, if you're enlisting in the Air Force, is your time in the delayed enlistment program. I think that's a perfect avenue to during your uh, your um, your monthly meets is is practice those those uh uh working the room right when you get to the meeting you should be like handshaking and introducing yourself and you know talking to everybody that's there every other recruit right that's a great practice avenue um so all really really good advice colonel i really appreciate it um yeah so tell me about a time maybe tell me a story of uh, a time that that you failed um and that that it had like uh, a great lesson learned in it that that you were able to apply later in life yeah so i'll start off with a quote uh this great uh philosopher named dave hagman and uh he said that uh true growth occurs when we put our shoulder into what is painful mm. and i'll tell you that failure uh, should not be something that is feared, right? Because that's when true uh, personal and professional growth occurs. And um, for me, I failed a few times, but the biggest one 
was in 2006. Okay, prior to 2006, I had my first recruiting tour, and I was a major, and um, you know I had a successful tour. We were recruiting station of the year, and uh, promotion rates to lieutenant colonel for majors who completed recruiting almost 100 percent. And uh, you know I finished that tour. And I went to an infantry battalion to be the battalion executive officer. So that's number two in an 05 level command. And uh, I was pretty cocky. I mean, I was arrogant. You know, I just finished the toughest tour for majors. You know, I was pretty uh, harsh with people. You know, I just kind of like told people, you know, suck it up. You know, do what you're told to do. You know, I didn't have a whole lot of compassion for people's uh, difficulties, you know. And uh, I went to the infantry battalion, and I was so confident that I was going to get promoted that I'm like, man, we're going to Iraq, and uh, I better just buy all my lieutenant colonel uh, rank insignia now because when I get promoted out there, you know, I need to have it, right? So we go to Iraq, and then uh, about midway through the uh, deployment, the battalion commander, lieutenant colonel, called me into his office, and he says, hey, Kev, um, I don't know how to tell you this, but I'm just going to come out and say it. Uh, you didn't get promoted to major. And I was like, holy smokes, you know, I, I've never failed at anything in this point in my life. I've always been number one. And uh, now I'm, I've failed promotion to major, or lieutenant colonel. I said, there's no way this is true. And I was in complete denial. And I'm like, clearly they made a mistake. And I'll just check the... Uh, the administrative messages tomorrow, they'll send a redaction. They obviously made a mistake. And so the next morning I look for it, it's not there. The next morning, the next week, the next month, and there's no redaction. And I'm like, I actually got passed over, right? <laughs> and it was hard because, you know, um, I was a little bit too full of myself. And I had to come back from that deployment and see all my friends who were wearing Lieutenant Colonel uh, rank, you know, at the social functions and they're going off to 05 level, you know, Lieutenant Colonel level command. And I was stuck there uh, as a major and I felt humiliated and, uh, and it was really a tough time for me. Um, but I'm going to tell you that, uh, you know, it was probably the best thing that ever happened to me because as I mentioned, you know, I was arrogant, brash. I just said whatever I felt no matter how much it helped hurt people. And um, I, I ended up learning that, um, you know, that I had a responsibility to, to show compassion to people, right? That I had to uh, talk to people in a way that was respectful, uh, that treated them with, you know, the dignity that people uh, deserved, uh, that I had to be humble and understand my limitations and that I was not special, right? Nothing was owed to me. And that I, I was just like any other of the thousands of majors in the Marine Corps. And nothing, I was not, um, you know, any better than anybody else. And, and so at that point, I, I just said, okay, uh, you know, we're in an up and out system. I get one more look for Lieutenant Colonel. If I make it, that's awesome. If I don't, then I just need to move move on, right? But I decided that I would just kind of, Go to work with humility, you know, focus on people in building relationships and just kind of nugging down and, and working hard, you know, not expecting any type of entitlement, 
not being angry at the, the Marine Corps, but just kind of put my head down, work hard, you know, do it with a smile and, and connect with the people I work with. And, um, you know, after that, I, 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 I did get promoted and I continued moving on. But I really took those lessons of just be humble, you know, be compassionate, build relationships, you know, do your job with a smile on your face with no expectation of reward and things will happen good for you. And, and that was the biggest le- lesson I learned out of failure. Wow. That's, that's really good. So the, the self-awareness that, that, that you had in that moment in time is really, really good, right? It's the, um, you're beating everybody with a hammer, right? In the way that you're talking to them. And then you, you make a mm-hmm. pivot and you, you decide that like, these are people, right? Compassion and empathy. Um, and that was a huge lesson learned for you, but on the self-awareness part, like, how do you, how do you develop more self-awareness like that? Um, uh, especially if you've never really been introduced to it, you kind of thought that the world revolves around you. Yeah. So, uh, self-awareness is not the same as like that thing that the introverts in your audience will feel, you know, a lot of time we think of self-awareness as like, I'm hyper aware Everybody's looking at me. You know, they're judging me. That that's not the same uh, thing. And the self awareness that uh, you're talking about is kind of best described uh, in a uh, kind of a metaphor that somebody gave me. And uh, it was out of uh, the Academy for Coaching Excellence, where I, you know, was once a student. And they said Oscar the fish. Oscar the fish is a fish, and he swims in the sea. But he doesn't know what water is because he's surrounded by it all the time. Then one day, Oscar decides he's going to jump out of the water. And so he does. And he's up in the air out of the water and he looks down in the water and he says, oh, that's what water is. Right. That's self-awareness. It's it's hard because we're constantly immersed in ourselves. We're stuck in our own head. And sometimes we got to jump out of water and look at ourselves from another perspective. And then if, uh, it, some of your audience may be familiar with the, the 12 steps of AA. Uh, the fourth step is made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. And what that means is sometimes we've got to jump out of the water, look at ourselves uh, from an objective perspective, and just write down the good and the bad about ourselves. And it's tough. It can be scary, right? And... Um, but it's so important because you, you'll find not just with the bad, there's a lot of good things about you too. But sometimes we overlie on our sense or our feeling about who we are. But what really we would have to do is just kind of step back and just write it down. Here are the good about me. Here is the bad. And then after that, what I recommend to people is think about like the good and the bad and then say to yourself, what do I believe? You know, what are my values? And then write those down, you know. And so, you know, I wrote those down once and I said, you know, I, I believe people should be treated with respect and dignity. You know, I believe that the family is my family is and God is the most important, two most important things in my life. And I put those in the right orders. Everything is going to work out. So I wrote down those those belief systems and my values. Right. I wrote down like integrity and courage, you know, compassion. And I wrote those down and I put them up on a wall in my room and I look at them every day. Hmm. And then the last thing that you do is kind of in, I recommend to people about journaling, right? 
kind of that self-reflection every day, just a small little book and just say, you know, today did I live up to my values and beliefs? Yes or no? And how did I? And what am I going to do better tomorrow? Because self-awareness is just not like a one-time, you know, meditation and I've achieved self-enlightenment, but it's an everyday thing, right? It's an everyday thing of thinking of my strengths and weaknesses, what I believe, what I value, writing it down, and then reflecting every day. Did I live up to it or did I fall short? And what am I going to do tomorrow to make it different? Yeah, see, you're still over here mentoring me. So I I absolutely need to be <laughs> journaling 110%. Um, Theodore Roosevelt had a really good one. Uh, it wasn't Theodore Roosevelt. It was, was it Benjamin Franklin or Theodore Roosevelt? I can't remember. Anyways, but he did a daily um, question, uh, morning journal, and that was, what good shall I do today? Um, so it, it does two things, right? It kind of resets the the moral compass, right? Because you're talking about good. Mm-hmm. like. And then also throws intentionality in it. Like what it is it and what direction specifically do you want to do, whether it be, you know, holding a door open for somebody or something, you know, bigger of, you know, going to volunteer at a soup kitchen or uh, just shooting a text to someone, a word of, word of encouragement and stuff. Um, because it also does is, is that it takes your mind out of yourself, right? And it projects it on yep. to others. Like how can I serve uh, other people um, in that? So that's really good. I really need to, do journaling. My wife has told me that a number of times, um, and I have been kicking that can for a decade, no doubt. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that you and I had that conversation in Stuttgart also. <laughs> yeah, more than likely. Oh, thanks for reminding me of that. <laughs> um, okay, so in regarding um, like self-improvement as a whole, do, are, you, are there any books that have been like really, really impactful to you? I think reading is such an important thing. Um, that, that young people can do to try and help, uh, that, that self-improvement and self-awareness and kind of introduce new ideas and thoughts and perspectives and stuff in their lives. Is there any books that, that have like been really impactful to you? Yeah. You know, um, I really, uh, became intentional, you know, using your word about, you know, my value and belief system, um, about, you know, who I am and who I wanted to be. And uh, it started probably, uh, uh, I guess it'd be 2015. I went to the Naval War College and I took this class called the uh, Foundations of Moral Obligation. And it was a course started by a guy named uh, Admiral Stockdale. And he was a prisoner of war at the Hanoi Hilton during the Vietnam War. And he was a uh, stoic philosopher and well, he was in captivity for like six years, of which half of it was in solitary confinement. You know, he, he reflected on uh, this book called The Enchiridion, uh, which is a uh, stoic philosophy about essentially, you know, there are things that we control and we can't control. You know, and we have, we focus on the things we can't control and let go of the things we can't control. And uh, I'll tell you, the, the stoic uh, philosophers um, are probably the most impactful for me. Uh, the Enchiridion is hard, kind of hard to read, but uh, there's a, uh, uh, the Daily Stoic is a great little book. Um, yeah, Ryan Holiday. That you can yeah. get on Amazon. Yeah, Ryan Holiday. So Ryan Holiday wrote that, and he wrote another one called The Emperor's Handbook, which is uh, Marcus Aurelius's book, uh, who is also a, a stoic philosopher 
And it's just short little reads about, you know, understanding that the world, it's life is hard, right? But, you know, when you think about in this tough life and all the challenges you go through, there's some things that are just kind of absolutely out of your control. And when you can learn to let that go, man, that is so liberating. Like all the things that trouble you and keep you up at night, the things that cause you to grind your teeth and cause your anxiety, I'd say 99% of the things are out of your control, right? Mm. And if you read the Emperor's Handbook or the Daily Stoic, you'll kind of get to this place where you're like, you just let those things go. They enter in your head and you go, well, I can't do anything about that. So you let it go. And I tell you, you in your own life, you'll receive so much like serenity and, and tranquility and peace when you can uh, uh, accept that. Another great book is... Uh, the authors are called Moore and Gillette, and it's a book called King, Warrior, Magician, Lover. And uh, I don't mean to exclude part of the audience, but for young men, I tell you, this is an absolute must read. Okay, uh, What they do is they talk about what they call the archetypes of manhood. And it, you know, it could be as easily applicable to, uh, to females also. But archetypes are like the ideal that come through history. Uh, you know, our stories, myths, and all that about what the ideal uh, mature adult is. And they kind of lay it down to like, you know, what is it being a man? And being a man isn't being like benching 300 pounds and, you know, getting up in people's face and being able to choke them out in a naked rear chokehold or drinking a lot of beer or being profane. That's that's a complete opposite of being uh, a mature, you know, uh, adult male. And this book kind of lays it out that, you know, these archetypes of the king is, you know, wisdom and justice, right? The warrior is focused, intentional, you know, willing to face difficult tasks or challenges. The magician is insightful, you know, sees the world for all of its beauty. And then, you know, the lover is compassionate, forgiving, empathetic, you know, the person who connects with people. And I'll tell you that when I read that book, it really caused me to kind of reevaluate my life and what I thought you know, being, you know, a father or what being a husband was. And it really transformed, you know, my my outlook and approach to everything in all relationships in my life. Yeah, so that's really good. So stoicism, uh, I know we've had many conversations about this in your office. Um, love it. Ryan Holiday, basically mm -hmm. any of his books are phenomenal. Uh, Obstacles, The Way, Ego is the Enemy, Stillness is the Key. Um, those are all really, really good books. Um, I remember you recommending the... What is it again? King, poet, lover, magician? Uh, I've got King, order. warrior, magician, lover. Okay. <laughs> so I remember you recommending that book before, and I've even seen it come up in my Audible uh, recommended list. Um, I will make it a goal to read that one for sure, because you've, that's twice now you've recommended it. <laughs> you won't be disappointed. Okay, right to that. <laughs> okay, so just one last question. Um, and I think yeah. that you can give a, a unique um, answer on this, um, in that, what is the difference between that you've experienced now that you are retired between like military leadership and civilian leadership? Like what's the difference between leading mil in a military organization and a civilian organization now? Well, um, I would tell you that there shouldn't be right. And I've, I've seen firsthand, um, that military leadership absolutely, absolutely is applicable in the civilian world. 
However, you don't see any of it. The things that, you know, your audience who are currently in the military take for granted, like, you know, setting a positive example, being able to plan and prioritize, being able to communicate effectively to people, you know, getting involved with people's, uh, you know, your employees' issues and help them resolve them, you know, kind of motivate and inspire them to achieve their potential and take your company from good to great. Absolutely missing out there. You know, you see it in, in, you know, bits and pieces. You may be lucky enough to land in a company one day where you see all of it, but most often you you just don't see it out there. And uh, I'll tell you that probably, you know, the three things that, um, you know, a lot of civilian leadership uh they really need that they could use and learn from military leaders or like how to plan, you know, how to organize and then how to communicate. You know, we, we take that for granted. You know, you have a plan of the day or if you're going to do a big maintenance project or you're going to deploy, you start with the plan right? and, and you build it a realistic plan based on, you know, your staffing uh, uh, capacity, you know, work hours, you know, any of the other constraints that you might have, you know, policies or laws or whatever, you know, you build the organization around the task and then you communicate it, you know, to your people. So everybody in the squadron or the wing or, you know, wherever you're at, everybody from the top at the commanding officer and senior enlisted advisor level down to the deck plate or, you know, the, the flight line, they all know what the plan is. You know, they understand the timeline, the intent, the end state. And everybody works together as one big group yeah. to accomplish that. And you just don't see that out there uh, in the civilian world. And I think all of your listeners out there know this stuff. You practice it. You see it every day. And that day that you decide to join the civilian world, that's the that's a golden thing that you're going to bring out there to any company you go to. That's wonderful. Colonel Matthews, it has been an absolute pleasure. I really, really value your uh, wisdom and insight. And I have no, uh, no, I, uh, no, um, I have no reason to believe that anyone that has listened to this did not get that wisdom as well. Um, I really do appreciate you coming on the show, sir. Thank you very much. And I, I wish the very best to you and all of your listeners, either going into or currently in or out of the Air Force. Uh, best of luck to you and God bless you.